Welcome back to the Good News Podcast. My name is Ayebele, and I'm a pastor at St. Paul's Free Methodist Church in Greenville, Illinois. I'm currently going through the ordination process, and one of the great gifts that the church has given me uh, is the opportunity to be a part of their rotating pulpit. The message that you're about to hear has been pre-recorded, but whether you heard it live uh, or long after it's been uploaded, I believe that the Holy Spirit is present. I hope you enjoy, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and feedback uh, and comments. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them, and then put him on his his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Thank you. If I have a random sneeze attack, it's my allergies. Um, so just, just a heads up so we can all pretend it, it's not happening. I want to start off by saying that the words that we speak... Right? They have a lot of power to them. If you study uh, abuse and trauma cases, you'll realize that what someone says to someone else does just as much in either building them up or breaking them down as their actions. Now, the things that Jesus' gospel led him to not only uh, to say, but uh, not, not only to do, but to say tickled many ears, specifically in shaking up the religious order and the scriptural interpretation uh, of the time. Jesus did not come to abolish the old, but to fulfill the law. This is what he said about himself. And I feel as though if we are a church that uh, seeks to preach the gospel faithfully, uh, then there's a problem if the religious are always comfortable with the words that we affirm, the things that we teach. Now, I'm not saying that we become divisive or arrogant uh, just for the sake of being controversial. I'm not encouraging that. But we find ourselves in a similar position as Jesus when there is a religious order to follow, an understanding of scripture that is common and that we are expected to affirm. Certain things as Christians, we must, uh, I guess we must proclaim, we must renounce and other things we must affirm, right? So there's things that Christians believe and don't believe. As I'm currently going through the ordination process, there's a list of things to complete. There's the LMC status, which is the local ministerial candidate. 
uh, and that's kind of designated to, to the church helping you uh, go through the ordination process. As you move to the conference ministerial candidate, the CMC, now the conference recognizes you on the path to, to ordination as they help you navigate. And then uh, ordination, right? You're an ordained uh, leader in, in the Free Methodist Church. We recently went through the Free Methodist Way, uh, which was highly recommended by our conference. And as a denomination, we adhere to the things that are outlined in the Book of Disciplines. So as someone who is seeking to be ordained, uh, much like the clergymen and women before me who are already ordained, there's an expectation that we will be obedient to the teachings of Jesus and our understanding of Scripture, right? The things that we proclaim, the things that we affirm, impact the things that we do, the way that we practice the gospel of Jesus. So in practice and word, we are to adhere to the free Methodist disciplines and ultimately to Scripture, to the Bible. Now, I think the ordination process, though a bit long, is very necessary, right, in helping, uh, in helping discern many things about one's pastoral vocation. And we could shed light on the kind of gatekeeping that's necessary to be a leader in the Free Methodist Church, but this is no different than what the early church did and what the early believers said, laying the foundations of the global church. From its conception, the body of Christ has for good reason had to establish the differences between proper doctrine and heresy, right? Things that are uh, the right way to think about God, the right things to, uh, to believe, and then things that are completely out of line. So if you pull on the threads, though, if you get a little bit nosy, you'll come to find that the balance of proper thought and practice can easily turn ugly. This drama of the church begins well before Martin Luther's uh, ideas accidentally sparked the Protestant Reformation. This is before Constantine allows Christianity uh, to be practiced, even before Paul picks up the pen in order to write to these different churches in the region. What we have now is a great multitude of denominations that stem from the words that we affirm about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how we can follow that way. This affects the things that we practice. This is one of the many layers that I have chosen to focus in on uh, in today's gospel reading. The reading of the story that is often dubbed the Good Samaritan. It requires a lot of attention because it is very commonly misused. I want to I read a, a kind of block quote from this uh, commentary, from a lectionary commentary. And it goes like this. What possibly new and fresh word can one say about the parable of the Good Samaritan? No portion of scripture is so widely known and quoted as this story of Jesus. What makes preaching on it so difficult is that the Good Samaritan has become a secularized saint. Hospitals, helping groups, civic awards, they're all named after the Good Samaritan without much attention to who he is or who introduced him to the literary, wor literary world in the first place. To be a Good Samaritan is shorthand for helping once a week at the local soup kitchen going out of one's way at the Christmas season to see that the food baskets get delivered to the neediest people, sacrificing five Saturdays in a row to work on a Habitat for Humanity project. Now, there's nothing wrong with lending a helping hand, mind you. It's just that our secularized saint has little to no resemblance to the character in Jesus's story. So the idea is that we have taken the story of the Good Samaritan and kind of molded it uh, as an encouragement to do good to those who need us to do good, to help those who are suffering. And there is truth to that, right? Jesus calls us to do that. 
But there's many moving parts in this story and potentially deep dives that you could go into that would satisfy one's intellectual itch. But I think the lectionary subtly points us in a different direction. Our first lesson today comes out of Deuteronomy, the last book of Torah, uh, in which it, it helps us understand this interaction between Jesus and the witty lawyer in our gospel reading. The book of Deuteronomy starts off with Moses calling the Israelites to faithfulness to Yahweh. This is after, uh, this is after the Exodus, right? They've, uh, they're coming into the promised land and Moses is instructing them on how they should live. Early in Deuteronomy, there is this prayer called the Shema, a daily prayer for the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Moses instructs them uh, with Yahweh's commands that you should keep these words that I am commanding you today. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. So it's clear that this is something that they are not to forget. If there's anything else that they know, this is one thing that they should not forget in how they sh and how it should instruct the way that they live. So the Shema, uh, the, the word Shema, the Hebrew verb is more than to just listen. I guess that's like the direct translation, but in its context, it's deeper than to just hear. It's to pay attention to and focus to uh, focus on and respond. Ultimately, you could say it's to obey, making listening and doing two sides of the same coin. Now, the middle portion of Deuteronomy is chocked full of the laws that they were supposed to keep. And unfortunately, we don't pay much attention to these uh, unless we are taking them out of context and using them for ourselves. So prior, prior to, during, and after Deuteronomy 30, our first lesson uh, today, Moses is giving warnings of what will become of Israel in both their obedience and their disobedience. But one thing that we see is that the law played a crucial role in, in giving them a guideline for their obedience to who they believed Yahweh was. So what we see in Luke 10 is an interaction between Jesus and an expert of the law. As Jesus is teaching, this expert of the law asks him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And rather than giving a convoluted answer, Jesus answers the question in a language that would be familiar to this lawyer. Jesus points him right back to their doctrine. He says, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer is wise enough to know the answer. He recalls the Shema that they were supposed to remember. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And he adds your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting to me is that the Shema in Deuteronomy doesn't really mention explicitly anything about the neighbor, but this has been gathered by this lawyer. Jesus affirms the proclamation of this lawyer to be true. And in doing so, right, it's a small takeaway that we can get from this is that our focus of the afterlife should never take precedence over the here and now. So this lawyer who seeks to gain the eternal life Jesus points them right back to the, to the doctrine that they have, to the, to the laws, and it's focusing them on the right here and the right now. So this lawyer, uh, as Jesus uh, fixes his gauge on the present conditions, we also can see that in our own ecclesial climate, there seems to be an emphasis on saving souls, 
which comes from right belief and proclaiming the right things. There's pressure on Christians not to lead the lost astray by facilitating conversations that raise questions. This might be considered heresy, what we're teaching. It do, if it doesn't fall in line with what the uh, church overall has accepted, then it's, it's thrown out. Part of the reason that we vet those who work in our Christian schools, those who work in our churches, in our faith-based communities, is that we need to know that they will have a proper doctrine, that they won't lead others astray. Essentially, though, what I see Jesus saying is that the afterlife can wait. By pointing this lawyer back to the law, Jesus is saying nothing has changed except for your focus. So what we are to do is to be present to the right here and the right now. And I ask myself, how radically different would the church be if we took this teaching to heart, that we would focus on the right here and right now, just as much as we're focused on the afterlife or eternal life. But the story doesn't end there. This lawyer gives us a goldmine to work through as he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with a parable. You got to love Jesus. Uh, he replies with a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. This is the beginning to a captivating story, one with conflict and bandits, plot twists, unlikely protagonists, and of course, a call to action. But we as the audience, as we're drawn into the story, if without context, we might miss the fact that Jesus is using precisely the same method of responding as he did before. This lawyer would have in memory a verse that explains why the priest and the Levite didn't stop to help the battered person who was fighting for their life. For us in the 21st century, uh, as an audience that is immersed in Western culture, when we read that the priest and the Levite crossed over to the other side, we would immediately label them as the bad guys. Those are the people who neglected to help the person who needed it the most. Our understanding is that the right thing to do, at least on paper, is that we would help that person who has been assaulted. Oftentimes, this is our biggest takeaway from this story of the quote-unquote good Samaritan. But our lawyer friend would have understood it differently. His ear would have picked up on something uh, that is not so obvious to us, a concept that wouldn't be uh, apparent without us digging deeper and going into the context of the day a little more. According to Levitical law, the priests and the Levites held a special place in Israelite worship. And for no reason were they to defile themselves and make themselves ceremonially unclean as this would impact the worship of the community around them. So this is much bigger than just the individual priest or Levite. This is to do with the community that they serve. If they are made ceremonially unclean, that kind of puts a halt on everything as far as their role in the worship. In the 21st chapter of Leviticus, it says that the priest who is exalted above his brothers on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the vestments shall not dishevel his hair nor tear his vestments. He shall not go, he shall not go where there is a dead body and he shall not defile himself even for his father or mother. This would be a law that they understood and maybe the biggest deterrent from helping the person who was beaten, robbed, and left for dead. This is how serious the duty was that even if it's for your own father or mother, you are not to defile yourself. 
So what about the stranger that you see on a road as you're traveling to wherever you're traveling to? Surely they're not more important than your father or your mother. So once again, we see that these bad guys in context have a proper understanding of their theological doctrine. They understand the law well, and the orthodox approach is crossing the T's and dotting the I's to make sure that they remain uncontaminated, allowing them to fulfill the duties that they were set aside for, that they were anointed for. Jesus is pointing the lawyer right back to the law in this parable, and the question remains, what is written in the law, and what do you read there? What is it that you're paying attention to, that you're focusing on? The story continues, as Jesus says, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with empathy. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, to, uh, said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Now here is an unlikely protagonist who gets it right. But this protagonist comes from a group of people that were seen as half-breeds. They were uh, a group of people that refused to participate in the restoration of Jerusalem. And they even uh, aided the Syrian invaders against the Jews. So the story of the Samaritan can't be told without recognizing certain power structures at play. In contrast, the notable identities of the priest and Levite in comparison to the Samaritan, it would be an insult to say that the Samaritan fulfilled or lived out the Shema better than the priest and the Levite. Now here's where I think that many sermons on this text focus the energy on parts of the story without paying attention to the umbrella concept, the overall arching theme. While the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor, perhaps in hopes to trick Jesus into placing a limitation on who our neighbor can be, the story seems not to be about proximity of location, proximity of social status, or proximity of wealth. As these characters use a common road, the travelers wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be understood as neighbors in any stretch of the imagination. For example, it'd be like you traveling in an airport and seeing a random person across the aisle and seeing them as your neighbor. This doesn't really happen unless you're trained to think this way. These characters are complete strangers to one another, and the question seeking to identify who is our neighbor, is not met with an answer that gets straight to the point, but rather than address the who right away, Jesus answers the how. Since all four characters are strangers, the thing that separates them is the how. Let me, let me explain a little bit. One person is on the road, half dead, left for, you know, for the animals or whatever. Uh, the second and third characters of the parable are a priest and a Levite, who maybe they were Rather than being moved by pity, uh, they moved across the street to their adherence of the Deuteronomical. I figured out was, as I was preparing this sermon, I have a hard time saying Deuteronomical. So uh, in their adherence to the Deuteronomical uh, uh, laws and statutes out of the proper belief of who they believe Yahweh to be, they move across the street. The parable doesn't really mention their attitudes what if they paused and looked at the person who was half dead and they wrestled with the decision at hand, knowing that maybe I'm supposed to do something? So what if they had pity, but they just weren't moved by it? Of course, there's a chance that they were apathetic, that they saw it and immediately their theological training brought them to the other side without a second thought. But I think it's a bit unfair to them that we would assume this right away. The Samaritan comes along 
and goes above and beyond the call of duty. Regardless of what the scriptures instruct, the Samaritan bandages the victim's wounds, which would make them ceremonially unclean. And if the priest and the Levite were to witness this, they would now see the Samaritan as even more contaminated than the Samaritan already is. Can you believe that this person is defiling themselves by going and helping someone who is uh, ceremonially unclean? So the Samaritan puts the victim on his own animal, making that animal unclean as well, and brings him to the inn and proceeds to take care of him, again, endangering anybody else who's at the inn, right, making them ceremonially unclean. And the next day, he takes out his own money and pays the innkeeper, saying that if there's anything more that's needed, I will give you what is left. I will pay the debt. What makes the Samaritan different from the previous two characters is that he does the unthinkable. He recognizes someone in pain and in need of help and then acts on it. The answer of who comes not by focusing uh, on the identity of the person, but rather what the person did. The how the neighbor loves is what, uh, is what classifies one as the neighbor. So Jesus gives the lawyer a visual of a, his, of a historic misunderstanding that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might comes before loving your neighbor. That is what is seen when they move across the street, that I need to keep my relationship with God or, uh, or with the community in my position as a religious leader, that I need to keep that intact. And so I'm loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and might by not defiling myself. This is manifested in the various religious practices that, that kept the, the, pre, the priest and the Levite clean, but their understanding of the law hindered them from loving their neighbor as they should. Jesus reframes this idea by saying that loving God and loving your neighbor are two sides of the same coin. In this interaction between Jesus and the lawyer, in which Jesus is attacking the hyper-focus on the laws as a means to inherit eternal life. The whole thing is vertical. It's me and God at the stake of whatever's going on with everyone else. So playing by the rules of the book it seems a little bit too safe to Jesus. That seems to be what Jesus is calling out, at least as I interpret this. Sometimes loving your neighbor as yourself will make you ceremonially unclean before the masses. Yet this is what it takes to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And all the while you are considered ceremonially unclean, God is pleased that you are being moved by pity. And perhaps this is the beauty of the forgiveness of sin, not evil acts, but the forgiveness of falling short or being made unclean. But the grace that allows us to live and love in a way that the religious would find, I guess, appalling and seek to crucify us, this is the same thing that happened to Jesus. These are the things that got him killed. So Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Be like the Samaritan. The lawyer is not even, I don't, I don't want to project, but to me it seems the lawyer doesn't want to admit that the Samaritan in the story could possibly be the one who fulfills the love of God. Now, our doctrinal commitments, without a doubt, they shape our practice. They shape what we believe, and this impacts what we do. And this parable isn't about one good Samaritan and I wish I could change every pericope, uh, 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 the titles of, of, these, of, these, of this parable, and change it to the obedient Samaritan. 
It seems that the Samaritan is obedient to the idea of loving your neighbor. This is not about being inherently good, but they are obedient to the love of God. This Samaritan understood that the call to love, which came uh, uh, from abandoning the orthodox way of doing things, had to abandon some of the things that were considered, uh, uh, you know, as something that would build up the relationship between God and, and with human. This Samaritan was obedient to the love of God, the nature of the kingdom of God. And when it came time to act upon it, the Deuteronomical and Levitical laws were not a stumbling block in carrying out the will of God. I also just want to point out, I said Deuteronomical without, without flaw. Why is this message important for us to hear then? I see two layers, really. The first is, let us not be like the priest and the Levite in this story. Surely, they were able to recognize that someone was in need of help. Of course, it had to be apparent to them in order for them to move across the street or across the road that this person is in dire need of help. They may have had pity, but it stopped there. This is, to me, the inactivity of the body of Christ in which the best that we can offer up is our thoughts and prayers in certain situations. I am talking about the, the things that we've witnessed in the past six months alone of countless mass shootings, of homelessness and hunger, abusive relationships and battles of inequality that we are fighting for. The list is endless of the suffering that we are able to recognize, but it's a bit messy to jump into. There must be more action than just our prayers and our thoughts. Now, I want to clarify that no single human can make the push to do all the right things, right? Right, all the wrongs that we see and fulfill everything. This is the work for the entire body of Christ in which we are the participants. At times, it's easier for us to witness the pain and cross the road, uh, not just for religious practice, but simply because it's easier. We don't have to get messy with the things that are going on with the person that we see beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Our energy doesn't get drained. We don't have to put up with anyone or anything. We just move across to the side of the street and go on our merry way. And eternal life being the end goal. The second is let us not be the lawyer. This is the second thing that I see. So bound to the law as a way to ensure eternal life that this whole parable confronts the legalistic and systematic approach when it comes to serving God while neglecting God's people. The characters of the priest and the Levite are a manifestation of how one can be so obedient to the guidelines and boundaries that they lose the imagination that is needed to live out what scripture calls us to, what it takes to love. Perhaps this parable, uh, Jesus is giving the lawyer a glimpse of himself. This is what you expect will get you eternal life. You think that the laws are what will get you there, but the laws are there to focus you on the right here and the right now. And if you can't see that, then what are the laws worth? Why are they even in your doctrine? Why do you read them? Might I add that our love for the hurting should not be paralyzed by the oppression and opinions that come from the religious movements, from religious people that make sure to cross the T's and dot the I's. When it comes to the controversial topics that someone can bring about behind the pulpit of sexuality, race, abortion, economic practices, so on and so forth, the body of Christ has to respond to the world around us. And may we respond, moved by pity, obedient as the Samaritan, placing the love of God above the performance of humankind, of, uh, of what we can do to inherit the kingdom of God, simply to fulfill the interpretations of the law. 
May we become contaminated heathens then or half-breed Christians in the lens of religious order. May we be messy and ceremonially unclean if this is what it takes to show love and mercy to the people that we see hurting. If it means that we are cast out of the orthodox way of doing things but fulfilling the love of God. The word of the Lord.